The word multimedia is the use of a variety of artistic or communicative media using more than one medium of expression or communication. Café is a type of establishment that serves coffee and is known as a place where information can be exchanged. The following is the audio version of the Multimedia Café. Sitting on a million, sitting on it every day. Can't make no money giving your stuff away. Why don't you do now? Like the millionaires do. Put your stuff on the market. You can make a million too. And a happy Monday, February 25th to you folks. Welcome to the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about today. Oh, by the way, my name is Jason Spies. I am your host. How rude of me not to introduce myself. Once again, my name is Jason Spies. I am the host, and this is the Multimedia Cafe, a place where we embrace technology and cafe talk bring it together we have the multimedia cafe we do interviews over skype we do interviews face to face we do interviews over the old telephone sometimes we even do them over that handheld communication device that's a computer that we often refer to as a cell phone that's right and the cafe talk like i said we bring in experts to talk about things that just impact your life on a day-to-day basis plus a little bit of that uh you know, the cafe clientele that comes in there, a little blue-collar talk from time to time. So that's what the cafe talk is. Okay, all right, now I'm just rambling on here. It's a Monday. I'm excited because today it's one of these flashback days where a lot of people wonder all this energy talk and the craze and what's been going on. And I have got an interview that we did with Brian Sullivan from CNBC from it was a few years ago when he went out to the Bakken. He did kind of a before and after type thing, and we had him on. I've worked with him on a few projects, and it's been it was interesting because a lot of that's happening down in the Permian right now. But it was one of those flashback interviews. I thought, you know what? It kind of transcends time when you're getting three hundred dollars for a Ramada in Williston, because that's what they're getting down in the Permian, and so it's it's interesting that the vibe and the energy is there so we kind of wanted to do that and plus i i even saw the flashback interview with mark Ingolstead. he's a oil and gas worker talking about those early days what it was like what the boom was like so today it's going to be a little bit of a flashback day plus we're going to have some live music performed here in studio in fact we're going to have one in just a moment here with brooks west he performs a song called back around Great song. Uh, it talks about, you know, just some of the life on the road and etc. But rundown of today's program one more time. Brian Sullivan. Brian Sullivan is co-anchor of CNBC's Power Launch. Actually, he's not that anymore. He got upgraded, but he was back in the day when we talked to him. He's kind of the big host of the entire program. He's like the anchor of CNBC right now. He does the morning show there. Joined it in 2011. So we're going to talk to him about his feature that he did on the oil and gas activity a couple years ago for CNBC. And like I said, then we're going to talk with Mark Ingolstead, and he talks about just kind of the early days out there in the Bakken oil field, what was going on, what the companies were, the frenzy, the brouhaha, everything above. Okay, that's what we've got going on here today. Like I said, let's go to that live performance here in studio by 
Brooks West. He's one of our friends of the program, great friend of mine. He's down in Nashville right now pursuing a little bit of a music career, but he's also an art teacher. So like a lot of musicians, that it's a feast or famine business. So one thing here at the Multimedia Cafe, we are big supporters of the arts and musicians are artists especially the singer songwriters because not only do they usually have a tremendous voice but they've got an artistic uh, linguistical mind that they can formulate words and music together to give us songs i mean i i'm a writer listen i'm a writer i can write i cannot write music so when i think of the people that can do both of those together i mean i just bow to them because the talent is amazing so all right, great show today. A little bit of a flashback interview with uh, Brian Williams, CNBC, and Mark Ingolstead, oil and gas worker. This is Brooks West coming up in just a moment here. My name is Jason Spies, and you're listening to the Multimedia Cafe. But awake in the morning Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. house and some days I can almost feel the wind blow 
Taste that cool, dry, dusty autumn air in my mouth Where the nighttime lights earth and light on the horizon Under the soft red glow of the wintertime sun clouds And all the memories come falling down on me Every time I roll back to town Separated. And every step I take falls on foreign ground, and I feel like going back to North Dakota. Take a job, find a wife, and finally settle down. But right now I'm addicted to emotion and freedom at my selfish. Solitude provides And I'd hate to think That I'd become a stranger To the place where I was born Where my heart still resides Where the nighttime lights Earth and light on the horizon Under the soft red glow Of the wintertime city clouds And all the memories Come falling down on me Every time I roll back to town Every time I roll Back Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you folks for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. As I mentioned, today's a flashback program, and this here is an interview we did with Brian Sullivan with CNBC talking about the oil and gas craze. Brian Sullivan, B-R-I-A-N-S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N. I am the co-host of the CNBC program Power Lunch from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. Uh, I am, I've just returned from my third trip to the 
Milwaukee, up in Williston, North Dakota, Tioga, Ray, North Dakota, uh, to dig further into the oil and energy story. So uh, let's talk about your first trip out there, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, if you want to start by with the most recent information, that's fine. But uh, just for a little context, I guess I was kind of wondering about your first trip out to North Dakota. First trip to North Dakota was October of 2013, when things were really heating up, and we wanted to go see how how Williston, sort of the Bakken region, was dealing with the boom. Uh, I've been through this business enough to, to have seen some booms, like the Internet boom. I've been doing this now for... Sadly, over, I guess, 20, this is my 20th year um, in financial journalism. And so I wanted to see how they dealt with the boom, and we, we met some key players and spoke with some locals, and it was just a classic growth story of things can't, you know, we can't find enough of this, we can't find enough of that. I'll, I'll never forget one of the, the cool anecdotes is that I stayed in this hotel, and you'll forgive me, I can't remember the name of it. It's now a Ramada. Uh, I think it was sold. It was on, a, like, a dirt road because... The hotel developer, they, you know, wanted to put the thing up, but you know, the town was is slower to put the roads down because there's so much growth. But you know, you have this rental car, you're sort of driving on this uh, this dirt driveway, <laughs> you know, to a brand new hotel, and, and the hotel was was nice, but it was also I think four hundred dollars a night, you know, and I was just sort of I was shocked by by just not only the level of growth, but just the level of cost. I mean, how much everything cost. Um, it was just shocking to me. So we were up there for, for you know, two days, whatever we were, and came back, and then we returned in December of uh, 2014. And 2014, that was two years ago, so oil prices were probably around that $60 range, if my memory serves me right. The um, bottom hadn't fallen out at that point yet, but the but the beginning had start. Uh, you started hearing oil companies talking about changing their, their operations in 2015. I can recall Lynn Helms, uh, director for the North Dakota uh, Mineral Resources, start to give that kind of ominous warning during the uh, annual meetings in October of uh, 2013, I want to say, or 14. Um, when you went back out there December 2014, what was the activity like then? Was it still dirt roads at $400 a night Ramadas, or had it changed a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a Ramada. I can't remember what the name of it was. Um, no, listen, you're right. I mean, the price of oil had come down dramatically, very quickly, starting in October. So that's why we wanted to go. What's going to happen here? I, we, you know, listen, it's not a complicated story globally or in North Dakota. Or it doesn't matter where you are. Just look at the production numbers versus demand numbers, and you see that the world has too much oil. I mean, hard to believe we came from peak oil a few, you know, decades ago to now too much oil. But we went there to kind of see where the follow-up was. Things were still humming along because price of oil had only been down for a couple of months. And everybody was fully committed. Contracts were in. Drilling activity was high. Uh, we sat down, had dinner with a bunch of locals and various businesses, and you know they were all, of course, very optimistic. You know, as you would imagine that entrepreneurs are going to be. I mean, to be an entrepreneur, I think you have to be an optimistic person. Uh, but but it was also a sort of a sense of, I, I mean, it's just respect because we met the nice people up there. Everyone was kind of like, we're going to be fine. Everything's fine. It's going to recover. Oil bounce back. I wasn't quite so sure. I mean, you know. I'm just a journalist, but you look at the numbers and you're thinking that's a lot of gap there to make up um, in terms of uh, oversupply. Things are still things are still expensive. Hotel is still in the 300 buck range. Um, restaurants, there's a couple nice places there. Uh, we've done we've been to this place called the Williston Brewing Company, kind of a nice restaurant in town. All three times I met the owner, had him on the show, um, and he's a very successful entrepreneur, by the way, in Minneapolis and, and other places. But 
you know, we went there and the menus were expensive and the restaurants were crowded. And, um, I mean, they were still humming along because, because the price had just come down and there was a great expectation that, that it was going to recover very quickly. Um, I also do remember that it was negative 20. <laughs> I've never been so cold in my life. I grew up in Southern California. Um, it was negative 20 and obviously it hasn't happened. And so we paid a visit to them, uh, last week to kind of figure out, you know, the third stage. Okay, so last week you you went back to the Bakken and you did okay. So let's let's same question. Uh, now you're back to the Bakken. Uh, dirt roads, three hundred dollar, four hundred dollar a night Ramadas. What where, what was the new normal? Because I'm actually doing a story. I'm, oh, hang on one second. I'm twenty nine. Okay, I'm sorry. One second here. Um, I'm actually doing a story called uh, The New Normal, is what we're calling it right now, uh, talking about some of these new communities. So I guess, yeah, I mean, what was the new normal? Uh, 129, you were saying? Yeah, I paid 129 a night for, for the hotel that was in the 300s the last time I was there. Here's the weird irony is that this isn't even me saying this. This is the restaurant owner for the Wills, the Brewing Company, and others who live there, which is the last two times I was there, there wasn't enough of anything. There wasn't enough hotel rooms. There wasn't enough restaurants. There wasn't enough cranes for the oil rigs. Wasn't enough anything. Now there's suddenly too much of everything. And there's too many hotel rooms. There's too many restaurants. There's something like 33 restaurants now in Williston, North Dakota. That's what this restaurant owner was telling us, Marcus Junkin, name, J-U-N-D-T. And there's, you know, and new hotels opening up. So there's a glut of rooms. There's a glut of hotels. We met a guy the first time we were there, really nice guy named Andy uh, Noss, N-J-O-S, who owns Dakota West Crane Company, and they started with one crane, him and his cousin, and they went down to Houston and drove this crane back. Took them like a week and a half to drive this crane. I mean, when I say a crane, you know, I'm talking about these giant cranes, you know, with like, you know, 20 tires and stuff like this. They go 50 miles an hour max. And they got up to nine cranes, and in fact, he went out to Columbia, South Carolina, and drove a crane back um, 45 miles an hour from Columbia, South Carolina, to, to Williston. It took him 16 days. <laughs> 16 days, because he had to stop and get permitted, and the thing was slow, and was gas <laughs> problem. And now he's down to four. So he went from <laughs> one to nine to four in the course of three years. And, you know, and, and, he's, and he's had to lay people off, and they're, they're a small business, and they're a family business. They're struggling to sort of, you know, keep things going. Um, so we went from, from not enough of anything to too much of everything, and here's the, here's the sad reality of that type of world. If everybody, Jason, is half full, they're all doomed. So what's going to have to have happen is either we're going to see a recovery, and we're going to see the rooms get filled back up, and the restaurants get filled back up, and the apartments get filled back up, or there's going to be a lot of closing stuff down because you, you need to have businesses 75% full to really, to really stay in business. I don't care what you are, right? You know, you, you bring up a very interesting point. I was just talking with a, a real estate uh, commercial broker out of Minneapolis yesterday, and he represents a number of firms out in the Bakken. And what he was talking about was, 
the drop in rents from 3000 down to 1000 to 1500 but not only do you have a drop in rents but you have a drop in occupancies so actually your 75% projection is really more of a 25% projection and that if you don't start to see some heads in the beds you're going to start seeing some bankruptcies and possibly some uh, you know you know some properties that are going to be for sale because a lot of these people who own the buildings they didn't intend to be landlords did you see anything along those lines or hear any of those numbers like i just said yeah well listen there's a gigantic private equity firm called uh, colbert kravis and roberts i don't know if you've ever heard of them they're colloquially referred to as kkr they're one of the biggest most established private equity firms of the world the, 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 the book and movie barbarians of the gate was about their takeover nabisco i mean they're a legend you know I mean, they've been around forever they built a giant apartment community in Williston. I mean, for them to go to Williston, North Dakota, number one, says something, right? I mean, it's a firm that does $20 billion deal. They went to Williston, built a giant apartment community, and uh, we went by it. You know, listen, again, anecdotally, so don't quote me on this. You know, you can dig in the numbers yourself. Anecdotally, it didn't look like good many people there. And the guy we were with who lives there, who's a land developer, like they're getting killed. And, and I think that they might have even left or sold off. You might want to just do some research into that on your own. But the point is a giant New York private equity firm goes there and getting its real estate, you know, you know what, handed to it. Mr. Brian Sullivan, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to continue the conversation with Brian Sullivan with CNBC, talking about the oil and gas economy and why uh, oil prices can impact the overall economy. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Multimedia Cafe. You know that I've lived, yeah, you know that I've tried. Well, I've told the truth, yeah, you know that I've lied. Meridian Energy Group of Belfield, North Dakota, is building the most technologically advanced oil refinery on the planet, the Davis Refinery, a project designed to achieve emission control levels the industry has never seen before. The Davis Refinery, working for North Dakota. MeridianEnergyGroupInc.com. Welcome back to Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool and joining the conversation here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who we're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Brian Sullivan with CNBC. Um, the other thing, too, is that if you've got everything sitting empty or partially empty, it's not good for crime. I mean, it's not good for anything, right? I mean, there's, it looks things get things start to look run down. Again, the city, the people up there are wonderful. We made some good friends, and Williston is going to be fine long term. I want to make that point clear. I mean, Williston will continue to go on, but they they went through this huge building boom, and you're right. I mean, things have got to physically shut down. I mean, there's gonna you can't have that many restaurants in a town like that. I mean, it, it, you can't have a half full restaurant. It, you, you, nobody will make it. Everyone will just kind of bleed along. So there's going to have to be. Uh, either a recovery and here's the other thing too and you know you would know more about this than i do gosh i'm not an oil and gas guy by the way i'm just a tv anchor who likes oil and gas and i've been covering it for a while is that even if the price of oil recovers to a hundred dollars tomorrow i mean are they going to be able to get the people back people left they found other jobs you know or they didn't and maybe they're they're, they're less willing to come back to williston because they got you know they've lost fifteen thousand people in the county in the, in the course of a year 
I mean, could they even get the rates back up? Uh, you know, actually, that, that's about a 12 to 16th month lag time. I did a story on that, and I asked that specific question, and it was, if oil prices went up to, say, $100 tomorrow, what would we what would we look at for when the rigs would be back? And they said there would be about a 12 to 16 month uh, time window. And that, that really resonated with me because what you're saying is right, that um, some of these places, they got to take a look at their long-term projections here and to say, where are we at today? Because it might not be another year or year and a half until we actually can start seeing some projections that come near what the originals were. How much money do we want to continue to shovel in this or do we want to cut our losses and move on? Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the other shale plays as well. Uh, you're visiting some of these other shale plays. Uh, what are you seeing in comparison to the activity when it comes to the Bakken? Well, the activity is down everywhere, but I will say this, the Permian Basin, is that what you're referring to, the other physical plays? Uh, yes. Yeah, the Permian is, is, is probably doing the best of all of them. Um, and again, everybody's hurting at this price point, but uh, the Permian is the oldest play. Um, I think the Texas operators kind of, uh, some of them anyway, uh, the Diamondback Energy, the pioneer natural resources of the world, they saw it coming. They started cutting costs early. Um, and, you know, they can be, they can be profitable. Uh, some of these companies have told me they, they're profitable under $20 a barrel. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not much, but they are. In other words, they can, they, you know, they can continue to, to grow and to, um, you know, not maybe to expand, but, but yet to survive without a problem. Eagleford is a little more difficult, you know, it comes up in price. And listen, you get these weird things like the Marcellus out of Pennsylvania and stuff. That's more like North Dakota where it's newer, it's, it's a more expensive land. And, you know, you probably need a $60 number. I mean, again, you would know more out the side view, but if you talk to oil companies, as I have, I mean, they're, first off, they're very reluctant to tell you, you know, where they're profitable. I don't know I'm going to say, like, it's $60.50. You know, it just, that rarely happens, if ever. But, you know, what you hear from, from people up there is, I asked a guy working a rig, I mean, you know, and he's a manager of a, one of the 33 remaining drilling rigs up there. He said 65 is a nice number. Hmm. I trust him on it. Yeah, sixty-five is a nice number, but around the country, yeah, fifty, forty, you can make money in some places. But if you're a late bloomer to this game, no matter where you are, and you paid a lot of money for land and mineral rights and crews, and didn't manage your balance sheet well, you're in trouble. And I've said on my show that forty is not much better than thirty for a lot of these companies. It's they're they're losing less money, <laughs> but they're still losing money. So look, look at this from the big. By the way, you had a big, sorry to interrupt, you had a big play today. Uh, the former $14 billion company called Lynn Energy, L-I-N-N, $14 billion company three years ago, basically today came out and said, we don't know if we can continue to exist. Wow. Now, they, they use the term going concern. That's, you probably know that's a business concern. We are questioning, something like we are questioning our ability to continue as a going concern. That's an accounting term, basically saying, not sure we can pay the bills. They deferred a debt payment. This was a $14 billion company three years ago, and that's why I got involved in this story. It's not just that I enjoy oil and gas, it's that the debt levels, the debt angle to the story is the one that, that has not been told or was really understood a couple of years ago. And that's why this is different than in previous booms and busts, because of the amount of debt that was taken on by companies and individuals. I mean, look at the state of North Dakota. You got a 
trillion dollar budget shortfall. How is that possible? They didn't, did they save anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what, what, one of the reasons I got interested in this story, um, w- which is known as the shale play, was was because of the change. There's something felt different, much like how you gravitated to it, because there, this this play does seem different. And when I heard uh, John Gibson, the former uh, CEO of One Oak, tell me who I've interviewed, and uh, he told me that they're rewriting their business plan. So did Harold Ham. Um, James Volker from Whiting alluded to the same thing. When I started hearing these men of that caliber tell me they're rewriting their business plan, the first thing I thought of, in all honesty, was my industry, the media. I've been in the media now for 20, 25 years, and when the internet came around, I had to literally rewrite my whole business plan multiple, multiple times because, you know, nobody would pay for it. And then how do you get them to pay for it? And yada, yada, yada. And then you started seeing uh, the Los Angeles Times go out of business because, you know, after 100 years of being a successful company, the Internet put them out of business. So to me, that's what the shale revolution kind of reminded me of is this technology wave that is changing oil and gas to the tune to where, the d- d- deepest pockets are going to win, and and I don't know. I, I guess uh, do you got any comments on that? I guess. Well, you know, I like the analogy actually. <laughs> um, I hadn't thought of it before, so I think it's pretty pretty good. I guess the idea would be this. I mean, it's kind of like to your point, media now, print or TV, it doesn't really matter. I mean, print ad rates come down a lot more than, than I think broadcast. But the point is the same: is that the whole industry's changed, and I and I feel like. I feel like with the oil producers, it's kind of like, well, it's just a matter of time before oil recovers and goes higher again. And, and it's kind of like us saying, well, it's just a matter of time before ad rates go higher again. <laughs> what if they don't? What if they don't? Right. And that, you have to operate your company like that. And if they do, great. If they don't, then you're prepared. But you can't assume prices are going to go high. You know, if, I think we have, you know, recency bias because oil's been above 100 a barrel twice in the last five or six years. If you go back 40 or 50 years and inflation adjusts, the price of oil is like $40, 45 bucks. I mean, that's where oil wants to be. For the 90s, oil did nothing, right? I mean, and so for, the, for most of the 90s. And so it, it's entirely possible that just because oil has collapsed as much as it has, that it's not going to recover. It, it may not. What if it doesn't? And I think if you're running a company, you have to have, you know, you have to have a a budget and, a, and an operating plan that says, what if oil is at 40 to $45 for the next five years? How does XYZ Corporation get through that? And that's what you have to do. And the good news, I guess, is that people are going to learn to operate a lot smarter. And that, you know, if they can operate at 40 to 45 that if we see a turn, um, you know, that until labor rates go back up, that, that they're going to be able to, to make some money and, and possibly grow. So, but if they don't, you, you darn well better be able to have your balance sheet in order. And if you took on a lot of debt and can't renegotiate your debt or issue new equity or whatever it is, you're in trouble. That's why I said 40 is not much better than 30 for some companies. Well, okay, so I've been very vocal in saying about about a year and a half ago, I came out and tweeted in telling you that I thought that oil's drop of this magnitude was bad for the economy. And people basically were saying I was an idiot because, you know, that's low gas prices and low gas prices are good. Yes, low gas prices are good. But when you look at all the jobs that have been created in this industry over the last five or six years, keep in mind, this was the only industry adding jobs 
during the financial crisis. If you had a high school diploma and wanted a job and you were willing to bust your butt and freeze, <laughs> freeze it off as well, you got in a car and went to Williston from wherever you were, you could make a good living if you worked hard for it. And, that, and during the financial crisis, this was the industry that was growing. We're talking tens or hundreds of thousands of good jobs. And that's why I've said that I don't think that it's a positive for America. Just because we have cheap gas, people aren't going to buy a home because gas is cheap. And that was Brian Sullivan with CNBC. As I mentioned, it's a flashback program. That interview was to kind of talk about the recent oil and gas craze so people can understand what's been going on and how the cycles work. That was a flashback interview with Brian Sullivan with CNBC. All right, when we continue, we're going to continue the flashback interviews, continued twice, three times in a sentence, with Mark Engelstead. He's an oil and gas worker talking about those early days and what the companies were doing to get workers. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. I've had my run. I've got to go home Let me go home And I'll be alright Be home tonight I'm coming back My name is Otis, and I'm with the Kids and Capitalism KidCast. With me today is Chris Olson, co-owner of Treasure Island. And we have a few questions for him. Number one, what was your first job, Chris? My first job was actually sorting papers for my dad here at Treasure Island. So back then, uh, we were in West Acres down in the basement. And he would have uh, so much business happening, so many deals going on, that he'd have all these different papers everywhere around his desk. And I wanted to hang out with Dad and help him somehow. And so he'd say, okay, Chris, go through and pick up all these different papers over here, and then I want you to alphabetize them. And so I would do that based on the name of whoever the person was that sent the invoice or the paper, and I'd get them in the stacks. And then I'd put them into folders that had that person's name on it. So I could save him a lot of time and make sure that everything was organized and sorted by date. And so, yeah, that's how I got started. I think I was probably, oh, maybe six or seven years old back when we, uh, when I was sorting papers for my dad. Did you get paid doing it or not? Um, yeah, he would, he would give me, you know, a couple bucks to go play some video games over at Pirate's Den because we had Pirate's Den in the mall back then. And so you had, you had no, arcade, yeah, the big arcade games where you could pop the quarters in. and Up, down, up, down, left, right, A, B, start. Oh, that was Nintendo. No, that's Konami. Yeah, that's Konami who made the game on the Nintendo system. So you're talking about Contra. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, 3D right. 3D Lives, yeah, yeah, 3D yeah, Lives. Yeah. yeah, Contra. So that's a great game. I loved Contra. But, yeah, I spent a lot of time playing video games. And that's how I got so smart. <laughs> you just made the Galaga. You just made the Galaga sound when you die. You did yeah, that. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, well, how do you make money with gold? How do you? Okay, so the way that we make money with gold, a lot of people think that we buy gold when it's a low price, and then we sell it when it's a higher price. But that's not what we do. That would actually be called speculating, and we don't speculate at all. What we do is we, uh, 
we, we purchase gold from refineries and mints and, and other people who have gold or silver that they want to sell. And when we do it, um, we simultaneously sell it in a paper market, and that's called a hedge. So if I buy gold for $1,300, if I buy 100 ounces of gold for $1,300, I'll simultaneously sell 100 ounces of gold for $1,300 on paper on a market like the COMEX. And then the price of gold, if it's going up or it's going down, I'm protected from that movement in price. And so where we make our money is what we call it's on the spread. So if we have, say, a 10-ounce gold bar, and the price of gold is $1,300. I might be buying gold at $10 per ounce over the price of gold, and then I'm selling it for $20 over the price of gold. So I'm making $10 on a $13,000 Profit, bar. yeah. Yeah. So it's not a lot of profit. The gold industry is very, very competitive at our level because we, our, our major business is wholesale. So we distribute gold all over the country. And so we have a very, very thin profit margin, and it requires us to manage the risk and to hedge and use derivatives and different instruments. So it's pretty complicated. Not a lot of people know how to do it that way. Um, what is the coolest thing you've bought or sold or found from a metal detector at Treasure Island? Well, uh, the coolest thing that we've bought or sold, man, it's been so many things. Um, or found. Well, my, my dad has found uh, ancient Celtic gold coins. He found um, a Roman gold signet ring that was used by a Roman official to, to stamp a wax seal for the envelopes that he would send to other people. So my dad has a gold ring with a wax seal, um, or with, with a, a, a signet ring that, that is used for stamping. Uh, my dad has found a papal bulla in a ancient Roman battlefield in England, and so that was a big lead seal that the Pope would use to seal a communication that he was sending um, somewhere else to some other country. And so my dad found one of those buried in the ground. It was lead. Yeah, it's a lead seal. It was it was lead. Yep. Yeah, it's poisonous. Lead. Yeah, lead. Lead is yeah. You got to watch out for lead. Um, so he's found lots of cool stuff, and we buy all kinds of cool things. Right now we have, uh, we have two um, sterling silver elephants with real ivory tusks. I that, want an elephant. That uh, they're probably 20 or 30 years old, but they're big silver elephants, and we're trying to figure out what to do with them because they're worth some money. But we always find cool stuff here. I, I can't even begin to remember how many cool things we've bought and sold. Do you deal with Pokemon cards? Because they can be worth a lot of money. No. We used to deal with cards um, back in the 80s and the 90s. That was a big thing that Treasure Island was known for. Kids from all over Fargo would come to Treasure Island to buy their baseball cards. Oh. Um, and, and other cards. Even even your dad. Even your dad. He was here? Uh, he, he would come... Uh, and, and buy cards, and everybody in town came to Treasure Island for sports cards. But with the Internet, um, once the Internet came out, it made it very difficult to make any money on cards. And pretty soon we were finding out that our wholesale distributor was selling us boxes of cards 
for more than it would cost us to go on eBay and buy them ourselves. So why would our customers want to come in and buy cards that are more than the price of what than they can? Yeah. Exactly. So so like Amazon and eBay basically wiped out all the little card shops all over the country. So you don't see many anymore. So we got out of the card business in 2001. That was when we finally said, "Oh, we're done." Because I've been on the internet and looked at all these card prices, and there's, I've been looking at Pokemon cards, and there's a card for five cents. And yeah. why would you go to a store and buy cards for five bucks when you could just get it off eBay? Yeah, but there are some cards shops like uh, Paradox downtown. They sell. I go. You know, I'm I'm a customer there. I go there about every week. Yep, yep, so that's cool. Um, what advice do you have for young kidpreneurs like me? Young kidpreneurs, well, um, question everything. Never, never um, assume that you know what you think you know, uh, and, and take advice from other people, but you, you always want to be trying to understand the whole picture. So when somebody's teaching you something, they're giving you a little piece of a puzzle, and you got to try to fit it in with other pieces of the same puzzle. And you're trying to create a picture of the world for yourself. And so that's what I've done all my life: is just take little things. And sometimes you'll get a puzzle piece that doesn't fit anywhere, but you just got to take it and put it somewhere, and wait until you find other pieces to put like together. It. Yep. And and also, you know, don't think about like, well, I'm going to go to college. And that's just, that's the magic pill that will get me a good life and a good job in the future. You have to think about why would I go to college? What career would I want to go into? And then you also have to think, is the career that I want to go into, is it something that people need? Is there a demand for it in society? Or am I just going to be throwing money down a hole to get a degree that gets me a job at McDonald's? So... You get you got to really understand the world and and try to find you know what am I good at and and how can I help other people because in the end being an entrepreneur means that you are delivering a service that people need that people want and that's how you make money that's how you get rewarded for doing something that other people want so you have to think about what is what is lacking in the world and what can I do to give people a service that they're not being given or do it better yeah. Yep. I'm going to get a high school diploma and make calendars with kitties on them. <laughs> you could do that. You could do that. I hear there's a lot of demand for those. And that was Mark Ingolstead, an oil and gas employee, talking about the early days in the Bakken oil fields. Also, we had Brian Sullivan with CNBC. I'd like to thank both those people. Maybe I should start over and do it correctly. I'd like to thank Mark Ingolstead, oil and gas employee, talking about the early days, and Brian Sullivan with CNBC, talking about some of these early days with pricing and also why low oil prices are not good for the overall economy compared to oil and gas. Um, it's a great topic to have. So if you miss this interview or any other interview, go to our website, thecrudelife.com. The Multimedia Cafe is part of the Crude Life Media Network. Check out our social media army of energy enthusiasts and also just overall Bubblegum for the mind, topical people that want to be part of our ever-growing social media army of 350,000 followers. Go to thecrudelife.com and click on the social media tab. That's going to do it for today's program. 
We'll be back tomorrow at this time on this radio station. Thank you very much for joining us here. And if you're not joining us on the radio and you're listening to us via podcast or online through some streaming mechanism, we thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow as well. From the staff at the Multimedia Cafe, my name is Jason Spies asking you to savor life and enjoy the spice. Hey, on my mind to the night. Hey, on my mind. Hey.